Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the, other, to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert on the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, you know there are Christians and there are almost Christians. And many almost Christians believe that Christianity is a series of rules, of rules about living, ethics and moral code, which, you know, that's only part of what Christianity is. Historically, Christians have looked at three 
reasons and methods and authorities to determine what is good and what is bad. Our ethic and moral decisions are based upon three basic ideas and methods. The first and most common method that Christians use to decide what's good and bad is the God-commanded-us method. This is the method we use to teach children and to teach teenagers when we teach them the Ten Commandments. You know, the first five books of the Old Testament are filled with God's commands to do or not to do certain things. In fact, the ancient Jewish rabbis, when they went through there, they came up with a list not of ten commandments, but actually 613 commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. 365 of those commands were things that you didn't do, and the other 250 were or so were things that you did do. Much of Jewish education in the ancient world was spent in learning these 613 commands and figuring out how to apply these commands when different commands conflicted. Like the question of what do you do if your cattle fall into a hole and it's Saturday morning, the Sabbath. The, the law says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and clearly getting cattle out of a hole is going to be work. But you can't just leave your cattle in there to suffer, can you? So these were questions that were debated by the ancient Jewish rabbis. We call this approach to ethics and morals an authority-based approach because we turn to a source like God or a teacher or a coach or a parent for a definitive answer about what's right and what's wrong. And therefore, this approach is common throughout Europe and America it's basing our ethics upon the Ten Commandments and other commandments that we find in the Bible, like the Golden Rule. Even people who are atheists in America generally follow the basic rules of don't steal, don't murder, don't cheat, because these ideas are taught by almost everyone in America, even non-Christians. These authority-based ethics work well in a society as long as everyone accepts the same authorities. In America and Europe, the common authority in most places with most people is the law which God gave to Moses and the follow-on commands that Jesus brought into the world. Our entire sense of fair play, our basic ideas of what's acceptable in our societies and what's not acceptable, our concepts of justice and mercy come from this common background. But you know, it's not so in some other parts of the world to people with other authorities. As many of you know, we used to mentor Chinese students up at Marietta College. And they come from a background with Buddhist and Confucian culture. Very few of them had ever heard of things like the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule. It's not in the culture. So when the Chinese students come to America, up, like a, up at Marietta College, every fall they have a particular problem which happens with a certain small percentage of those students. Not most, but it is enough to be a problem and to be noticed because it's much more common than with American students. They cheat on their exams and papers. They get someone else to do it. For there's nothing in their ethical foundation that addresses this topic and tells them it's wrong. Apparently it's accepted in China it's kind of like a game between the students and the faculty. But it's not acceptable in our American culture, and so every year a handful of students are caught and they have to be disciplined. God has other ways, though, 
to handle ethical questions. There's a second way that people, the people will develop this ethical system. It may be best described as the practical or the Ben Franklin system of ethics. Ben Franklin wrote in his autobiography that most of the commandments should be followed, even if you're not a Christian, they should be followed simply because they lead to a more healthy and a better life. We do some things and we don't do certain other things because of intensely practical reasons. One bank robber was asked why he robbed banks. And he said, well, you know, that's because that's where the money is. Very practical guy, wasn't he? A burglar, you know, may, may have chosen to steal from rich people because they have the money. But he also holds himself to this standard. He says, I never take a weapon along for the practical reason that if I get caught with a weapon, I spend an extra five to ten years in prison. Practical ethics. Practical reasons drive ethics for many people who don't care a bit about what God has said. But thankfully, our legal system, which drives many of these practical considerations, is also based upon God's commandments. There's a third reason that drives the development of ethical systems, and it, it used to be much more important, and it can still be important today. That's what's behind the driving idea of Methodist theology, the idea that we are not saved suddenly. We're not saved once and for all. But we walk a path of continual growth. We get better and better in holiness throughout our lives. That reason we sometimes call the development of virtue. If you read Paul's letters, he is always talking about Christian growth and how to improve ourselves with God's help. Virtues are those aspects of character that are seen as good. Bravery, integrity, strength, kindness, patience, and I could list all the fruits of the Spirit. In Methodist theology, we often call this the development of personal holiness. We're not suddenly changed from being bad to good. Instead, we have to study and we have to learn and we have to lean on other godly people and we have to lean especially on God the Father Jesus, who is the Word of God, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit for help so that we will develop into better people over the years and decades of our lives. It doesn't happen suddenly. Maybe there is a noticeable change, but we still often, we all are unfinished. We have a ways to go. Good coaches rely a lot on the development of virtue when they're coaching their students. A young man will do many things to see himself developing strength in the respect of other athletes. A young girl will do many things to become a superb dancer or track star. A good coach will also develop other virtues than just the physical in a young person. They'll develop character issues such as, you know, a superb athlete never cheats in the game, in life, or uses drugs. Other coaches develop wisdom and plan planning in coaching young executives, instill integrity in young accountants and lawyers, teach leadership and mercy when coaching young leaders, remove harshness, remove a tendency to look for the easy way out, and teach an ability to adapt but still follow ethical rules. And all of this leads to the development of virtue and the person being coached. Y'all know who Tom Brady is, quarterback. Well, there's little in his daily routine that really 
speaks of God's commands on his life, yet we see in Tom Brady a virtuous man. He awakens early every day. He eats healthy foods every day. He prepares his body through difficult exercises every day. He studies his opponents. He practices with his team. He leads them on and off the field. He schedules time for his wife and children. He keeps a balance in his life. And during the season and most of the off-season, he avoids any sort of excess. Now, you've got to read really deep to see commands in the Ten Commandments for the things that Tom Brady does. But we see him as filled with virtue because he has chosen to become an excellent athlete. He's an inspiring leader and role model. He walks the walk and he's not all talk. His performance on and off the field shows that he does what is necessary no matter how bad he feels on Monday morning after being sacked a half dozen times. He gets up and he goes through his routine. It's because he's seeking certain virtues, and that's his guide to what is ethical behavior for him. And in Methodism at its best, we each read and study our Bibles daily. We learn from each other. We listen to the Holy Spirit throughout our lives and daily trials as we attempt to become more Christ-like in our actions and our attitudes and even our thoughts, moving more and more toward a saintly holiness in our lives that will encourage others to follow us to Christ and will help us live better and more abundant lives which are more fruitful for God. We are to be continually approaching holiness. In ancient Israel, there was a lot of discussion at the time of Jesus about what was important and what was not important in the law of God. That law that was brought to Israel by Moses. The rabbis, as I say, had identified 613 separate commands in the first five books of the Bible. And the Ten Commandments were just the most widely known. Now, they generally agreed on all these 613 commands, but where they got into the fights... Where they had got into the conflict was that it seemed like every school of Jewish thought had a different way to rank order these things. What was important? What was most important when the laws conflicted? And these were the big debates of the time. And we still have these conflicts today. We're, we're always fighting over personal, my personal freedom versus the freedom of others and their rights to live safely and comfortably. How much of my income can I keep Versus how much does the government take to provide for the police and the poor? How far can I go in using my judgment to educate and discipline and control my children? And when can the state step in because I've gone too far in harming them or teaching them things that may harm others one day? When do I get to decide to wear a mask and get vaccinated? And when can the government require this? What freedoms do adults have that we deny children? for the purpose of protecting them, and so on. I want you to think about something. You know, we're always talking about how bad things are, but have you ever thought that the philosophers and pastors of hundreds and thousands of years ago would be so excited and happy to see a country where so many, many people spend so much of their time debating moral and ethical questions like the proper boundaries between the control of your own body and treasures and the protection of the most vulnerable, weak, and poor in society? For our social media debates are not truly between good and evil, but they're between our ethical and moral priorities in life. Facebook has become a master's class in trying to determine what God and people think is the proper way to live morally and ethically. 
We may not agree with other people, but people are definitely debating these things. A past, as a pastor, it does my heart good to see people discussing what God wants. So one day, an expert in the law asked Jesus a question. Teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? It's a very important question. We still ask it today in a slightly different fashion. What do I have to do to be saved? Jesus turned the tables on him and asked the man a question. What do you see in the law? How do you interpret it? And the man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The man was saying, Love God and love your neighbor and go all the way with these loves. And Jesus responded with praise, Right answer to this and you will live. But now the man had to go a little further. Luke tells us it was so the man could justify himself or, or prove that he was really smart. Like many of the questions asked by the rabbis of the time, this question attempted to find a loophole, <coughs> make things easier for the person who was trying to follow the law. The man asked, and who is my neighbor? Was it the four men who live in the closest homes? Did it include their wives and children? Did it include the people down the block how about the Roman soldiers who lived a couple streets over? What about the people from the other side of the river who went to a different school or synagogue? And what about the family from Iran that moved in last month? How do you define neighbor? So Jesus told the man and the listeners what's now a very familiar story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. The priest happened to be going by on the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now to understand this, we need to understand also why the priest avoided the man. Was he just a jerk? Well, yeah, the man was a stranger and he'd beaten bloody naked and the robbers might still be around, so he might be in a real hurry. But there were many ways that a Jewish priest of the temple could become ceremonially unclean, like touching a dead body or blood. These were a couple ways. If he got someone's blood on him, he could not perform his jobs at the temple unless he first spent days in quarantine and then went through a special round of cleansing. The law from God encouraged him to stay apart, isolated from ordinary life. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, while many of the same rules for priests applied to Levites, who were the tribe of Jews from whom the workers at the temple were chosen. The musicians, the doormen, the guards, the choir, they were all Levites. And they could become unclean also. They might not be able to sing or play or do their jobs if they got blood on themselves. The last couple of years, you know, I've put many pastors in these same shoes. If we test positive for COVID, it means we shouldn't do our normal jobs for a couple of weeks. We should isolate. Happened to me last month. Yet our very jobs mean that we should normally visit the healthy and the sick. We should visit hospitals. We should shake hands with people as they enter and leave the church and do this among a group of the most vulnerable people because most of our congregations are older. For the safety of the people we love in our congregations, we needed to stay away from them. Sandra and I have tested ourselves many, many times. Our daughter says that we are frequent flyer 
COVID testers. We isolate for two or three days until we get a, a negative result. Of course, much of our worst ethical dilemmas were solved because the hospital simply wouldn't allow us to visit. So we met people in the parking lot. I just got this idea this week of, of having the bullhorn to pray to, for people in the hospital. So on the road, the priest and the Levite both walked by, avoiding the man on the other side of the road. They considered their jobs in the temple to be more important than helping a stranger. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. As you probably heard, Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They mostly followed the Jewish laws, but they worshipped at Mount Gerizim instead of at the Jerusalem temple, and that was enough for most Jews to look down upon the Samaritans as evil and subhuman people. Think of any group of people that your family looked, upon, looked down upon in the past, or today a religious group, an ethnic group or a group that's chosen behavior that most people consider wrong. And you have an idea of how despised the Samaritans were. But the Samaritan took pity on the man. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. In a time without antibiotics, the oil sealed the wounds against further infection, and the alcohol and the wine killed the bacteria in the wounds. And then the Samaritan put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after them. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Now, if you double-check this, you'll find that denarii, they were the small silver coins that were typically paid to a day's laborer for a day's wages. doesn't seem like much, but you do the calculations, you find out... He was giving the innkeeper 200 to $300 when he gave him those two coins. Plus, he promised to cover any additional expenses when he returned. The Samaritan was being very generous. Jesus then asked our lawyer, well, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And the expert replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Get your hands dirty. Be generous. You may get blood on you. You may have to spend some money. But Jesus might have added, all those, go and do likewise. Consider what the Samaritan did. He sacrificed time. Most of that day and some of the rest. Two days, some of the next day, two days to help someone he didn't even know. He helped a man who clearly had no money. After all, the man had been attacked by robbers who didn't even leave him with clothes. As far as the Samaritan knew, there wasn't anything that the man could do for the Samaritan. The Samaritan sacrificed his money, two coins, each one worth $100 to $150 in our money. There's no hope of the man paying him back. They'd probably never even meet again. But the Samaritan knew something deep and wise. The Samaritan knew that the man was a creature who had been created by God, the creator of the universe. That man lying there was a walking portrait of God, created in the image of God. He was looked at from a unique perspective. He was valuable beyond all money and time. He was special just because he was human. He was different from all other portraits of God that walk around daily. And the Samaritan realized that every person may contribute something 
to the world or at least is valuable to God. The man was a life and that was important to God and so the man was important to the Samaritan. But the Samaritan may not have cared about what God thought. Maybe he was simply rescuing him out of practical reason. But what could those practical reasons be? There was no money, couldn't benefit him. Maybe he just didn't want to leave a body to die alongside the road and create a stench over the next few days for when he came back from Jericho. But I doubt that was the reason that the Samaritan rescued the man and his life. For I happen to think that the Samaritan had a different reason. I think the Samaritan had a very high opinion of who the Samaritan was. Despite what the Jews thought of Samaritans, despite the way the Jews despised all Samaritans, despite the way the Jews thought so little of the Samaritans, this particular Samaritan knew that he was a good man. And because of this, he did what all virtuous men and women did. He helped the man lying on the road for the simple reason that the Samaritan knew himself to be good. He knew that he was better than what other people thought of him. He knew that this was part of the standards that he was holding himself up to. Likewise, there are people today who have been looked down upon all their lives for their ancestry, their speech, their habits, their choices, their addictions. In the same way, they can choose to do something simply because it's the law, and i got to do it, or avoid doing something uncomfortable because no one expects it from them. But they can choose to be better than what other people think of them. You can choose to be better than what other people think of you setting personal standards that are much higher than those of other people. You may be one of those people that are just now setting high standards for yourself. For the Samaritan was not simply content to follow a law which required him to avoid hurting a man. The Samaritan was not simply content to do things because of practical reasons. The Samaritan did this because he knew that God and the Samaritan personally both wanted the Samaritan to make his life meaningful, of consequence, a life that would be spoken of proudly by his children and grandchildren in his village. The Samaritan wanted to be a man of virtue, and so he went far beyond what he had to do and did the sorts of things that the best men do. In our world, there is a lot of, of discussion about what's required of people. You know, we pay taxes, we follow the laws even if we don't agree with them. We may even protest against laws we don't feel are fair, and we vote. Those are the sorts of things that our world tells us that we should do, that we have to do. But throughout history, there have always been men and women who have risen above the level of what's required and gone to do what people have agreed are the things that the best people do. And we celebrate them here with people who work with children and others that they might see the love of Christ and have a better life. We celebrate people like that. That Samaritan, not named, a man with no face, he knew that on that road he would sacrifice two days and two coins because there were two lives at stake. There was a man who was lying naked, dying on the road that day, and there was a Samaritan who was walking along the road who knew that he had a choice to make that day that would either lead him, the Samaritan, to a life where he could hold his head up high, where he could know that he was better than what all the people said about all the Samaritans, 
or if he chose to walk past, it would lead him to a life which was barely worth living, a life with a slow death, a life where his lack of action that day led to self-destruction as he remembered, as he remembered for the rest of his life, the man he had let die. And so he rose to the occasion, and he saved two lives that day. The man beaten on the road, and himself, the Samaritan, who became a model for who a good neighbor is throughout the centuries. You can do that too. The next time that you have a choice whether or not to step forward and do something in the church, the choice to help another in the community, the choice to sacrifice time and treasure even for a stranger, remember the Samaritan and what Jesus said it means to love your neighbor. He was the best person he could be. You can be the best person you can be for God, for your family, and yourself. For Jesus is watching, and he says to you, go and do likewise. After all, wouldn't Jesus have done everything the Samaritan did and more, and aren't we trying to imitate Christ? Go and do likewise. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.